This is the last Sunday after Pentecost, the Feast of Christ the King. The Feast of Christ the King is not officially the Feast of Christ the King in the Episcopal Church, but many Episcopal churches call it the Feast of Christ the King. And in typical Episcopalian fashion, the readings and the prayer that is said or sung at the beginning of the liturgy is the prayer for the reign of Christ or for Christ the King. So I would guess that the default position uh, would be that Christ the King is it for the last Sunday after Pentecost. And there are good reasons for this. The Feast of Christ the King is not an ancient feast in the church's life. It was first promulgated, which is the word that is appropriate, by Pope Pius XI in 1925. And 1925 is a time where three years before who came to power in Italy? Mussolini. And so the church felt some, uh, some responsibility to say to Christian men and women, where is the location of your principal allegiance as a Christian person? Is it the fascist state or is it the savior of the world, Christ the King? So in my sermon this morning, I'm going to say some things to you about how Episcopalians might understand authority in our common life together. What does it mean when we use that term? What is the origin of the idea of authority in the church's faith and life? And then to say some things to you about the gospel that I just read, the parable of the sheep and the goats, and how do we make sense uh, of this as we prepare for the Advent season, but maybe more to the point, um, an interpretation of this parable that is somewhat different than the traditional way most preachers interpret what this parable means and how we put it in our hands and make it part of our own personal history. In Latin, there are two words for authority. The first word is octoritas, which means the weight of the evidence. So, the, if the weight of the evidence uh, moves one in a certain direction, they would say, this is authoritative for me or for any group or institution. We believe that we uh, take the weight of the evidence as authoritative for us. And the other word that is used for authority in Latin is the word imperium. And the word imperium means authority that has the right to be obeyed. A lot of people confuse weight of the evidence with the right to be obeyed, don't they? Particularly about their own opinions. Let's see if we can think of an example of imperium in daily life, though. Probably we might say that um, the authority that a policeman has is imperium. Not under every circumstance, but most circumstances. And in other institutional circumstances, uh, there is an element of the right to be obeyed uh, because of certain circumstances. 
But the most congenial for the church's life, obviously, is auctoritas, both institutionally, collectively, and personally. But here's the thing. For most Americans, probably for most Western Europeans, what is authoritative in our culture is the autonomous self. What I think is true about it. How I think I ought to live. How do I conduct myself in my life? That's what has authority for most people these days. So, the idea that there may be something bigger than you that is true, or the weight of the evidence would suggest that uh, it would be a good thing to understand as authoritative in your life, is subordinate to how I feel about things and how I think about things. Although this gets um, confused in many people's minds because I've noticed in my own ministry and we certainly notice it in uh, you know, our common life together in the sort of collective noise of what's out there in the television and in the media, most people are willing to submit to what is authoritative for some pretty thin things, right? I mean, you read Robert Parker's wine letter, and if he gives it a 94, you go out and buy it. You know, so you take it home, and it's a fruit bomb, and you either like it or you don't. Right? You're willing to say yes. In fact, you may not even buy something that doesn't have a rating. You may not even be willing to take the chance. You may not be able to rely to talk about the autonomous self. You may not even rely on your own taste and instincts when they're perfectly reliable. So learning how to maybe think with some precision is part of the way in which a person determines in the life of faith what is authoritative. Now, Episcopalians have a way When we talk about the weight of the evidence, there are three places that we look. The Bible, the Holy Scriptures, the tradition with a capital T. You know, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church, is a church, and church is important. It isn't just some, uh, uh, you know, gathering of random individuals who are part of the life. We are part of something big, bigger than us. It's been around for 2,000 years. When I became an Episcopalian, I really realized for the first time in my life that I was part of something that was bigger than me, more important than me, and more to the point, had the potential of making me a better human being. And so I made the decision to say that this is going to be the location for the process that I will engage in to come to believe and to come to accept the weight of the evidence. Not unlike Bishop Butler in the 18th century in England who wrote something called the Analogy of Being where he said, Christianity is probably true, so it would be a good idea to believe in it. (laughs) Right? Right? Sounds kind of minimalist, doesn't it? But you know, during the Enlightenment period in the 18th century, 
That was a profound thing to say because what he meant in the analogy of being was the weight of the evidence for him was such that in this place I have found the the greatest location, my greatest safety and assurance, the life of the church. How does it work? How do we seek this authority? The great passage in the Bible for me always has been one of the maybe top five for this particular idea of the weight of the evidence is uh, sort of an oblique reference to this. When Jesus comes into the room to see Thomas and the disciples after he's risen from the dead and Thomas has said to to his fellow apostles he's not going to believe this until he physically sees Jesus can touch him put his hands in his wounds, then he will believe. So Jesus comes, Thomas does this, and Jesus says to him, Do you believe because you have seen me, Thomas? Blessed are those who believe and have not seen me. No, excuse me. Blessed are those who have not seen me and have come to believe. Come to believe. That was what John's community had to do because this gospel was written two and a half generations after Jesus died on the cross, rose again from the dead, and ascended into heaven. John's gospel was written about 100 A.D. And Jesus rose from the dead in 33 A.D. That's two generations later. So you and I are 2,000 years out And we need to figure out how to come to believe using octoritas as the authority. The gospel for today from Matthew is a fairly well-known parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. So let me say some things to you about it. I've, I've talked a lot about this over the last several weeks. Remember my default position is it isn't important what the Bible says. It's important what the Bible means. Whenever you read any of the sayings of Jesus in the Gospels, you need to understand them or think about them at three levels. What did Jesus mean when he spoke it? What did the oral tradition mean when they passed these words along in the individual Christian communities that began to uh, evolve and develop throughout the ancient Near East? And what did the gospel writer himself mean by this? How was he interpreting it for the events on the ground? So remember when the gospel means good news, it means good news updated for the people in the communities out of which the gospels emerged. Jesus is speaking the good news, the gospel, for his missionary work. The oral tradition is speaking the good news for the communities in their founding. And the gospel writers are speaking the good news for the pastoral situation on the ground in their communities. In the ancient Near East, everyone would have understood the agricultural description of separating the sheep from the goats. Goats are more delicate than sheep. 
They are identifiable in the herd when they're all herded together as they were in the ancient Near East because their tails are up. And they're a different color than the sheep. So it is a routine activity on the part of the shepherd at night to put the goats in a building or a shelter and to let the sheep stay out. This is a story about separation which every person who heard Jesus speak could understand. A natural course of events that they see on a regular basis. The goats and the sheep are separated. Now, he speaks of separation in a very specific way that also would have been understood by his audience. And that is that in the Judaism of his day, throughout its history, there has always been talk of separation and division. Who is in and who is out. And so Jesus is using an example here to support a point he wishes to make about separation that will occur if people don't listen. This parable is spoken in the context of Jesus sending out his disciples to preach the good news and to declare to the world that the kingdom of God is near them as they listen to the words and works of Jesus and learn by extension that they now can be the transparencies and reflections of this wisdom to the world. And he is speaking to them about a principle that, again, everyone would have understood in his time. And that principle is the Shaliach principle, which means that if you reject the messenger, you reject the sender of the message. So if Jesus is sending his disciples out and they are not fed and clothed and taken care of and given water to drink and listened to, when God's judgment comes, they have self-selected. The oral tradition in the church is going to take this and begin to say, in our missionary work generally, we need to understand another, a more affirmative way to understand this. And that is that the offer on our part of the generosity of human beings one to another is an instrument of God's inclusive work and that the default position for the Christian communities that develop is one of hospitality and welcome, and for Matthew, a former rabbi, a Jewish Christian, a member of a congregation of Jewish Christians that is now 80% Gentile, they need to learn and understand that in their expression towards the Gentile community, they must be generous and their welcome and hospitality is to be extended to them. And by virtue of the preaching and teaching of Jesus, 
they have learned that God's announcement that a new thing is being done through him can in fact be seen in the great tradition with a capital T of their people where the great prophets of Israel have declared on more than one occasion for several hundred years that God is calling the people of the covenant to extend this welcome to everyone. So you can see why it is so important for we Episcopalians to default on the side of inclusion. Now, what about this judgment business? We don't talk a lot about that in the Episcopal Church, and it's there in the Bible. There's no question about it. And always it's talked about as some future event where if you don't in some way hew the line, there's going to be trouble and plenty of it. Right? Bishop N.T. Wright, the Bishop of Durham, one of the most important biblical scholars in the world, no liberal, says, you know, we've got to stop thinking about this judgment as something that's some future thing that's going to happen to everybody and we we'll all have the daylight scared out of us. Sometimes we need to see God's judgment as moving towards us. And what he means by that, and what the Savior meant when he referred to God's judgment, is to see in the events in which we live, the circumstances whereby our decisions are going to have consequences for our health and welfare, for our spiritual health and nurture, for our emotional and mental maturity. And in human history, Matthew directly experienced what he believed to be the judgment of God when he saw the temple destroyed in Jerusalem by the Roman Empire and the ancient Near East thrown into complete and utter chaos in 70 AD. So in history, he saw this happen. And maybe that's the location where you and I ought to look. Now, the other thing to think about, though, is this. As you and I learn to cooperate with the divine initiative, as you and I learn to come to believe, as you and I cultivate uh, relational health in all aspects of our life, as we make a decision to move towards God by cultivating certain habits of being and relating, we in the directly experience also the generosity of God and the redemptive work of God in our own history. And that's what it means when we speak of the personal serenity and emotional stability that we receive through this process. And so rather on focusing uh, ourselves on the separation and the judgment, we need to focus on God's generosity and God's inclusion. Over the last several weeks, I have reminded you that for most Christians, through the ages, when God's judgment and God's mercy collide, 
God's mercy trumps God's judgment. The medieval theologians, no liberals, said God's judgment is God's strange work, God's opus alienum. God's mercy is God's proper work, God's opus proprium. And Jesus in this parable today is really speaking now about the proper work of God, how we come together now and understand our peace in the redemptive work of the Savior. So this week, think about how you can come to believe in the kingship of Christ in your own life. See that the authoritative things in your life are the process of learning what the weight of the evidence might be with regard to the deep things of Christian faith and belief. Understand that you are called to always express the generous gesture that hospitality and inclusion are the default positions for the church of God in Christ. You know, it is a source of great pride for me personally that this food pantry that we have had that precedes my tenure here and the Santa Maria Urban Ministry that I'm a part of as well help people without restriction or qualification or judgment that we extend the gracious gesture. It's up to God to decide the worthiness of the individual receiving that largesse. That's not our business. I wish I could say to you that other faith communities in Los Gatos are as generous, but there are some who believe that we extend the generosity only with strings and that there needs to be some sort of a religious test before you receive the help and the willingness to extend. You and I should stand and speak against that kind of Christian charity. It is wrong. So think about all of the things that you're going to be able to do as we move through Advent. Remember that you always have the help and the presence of a Savior who loves you, forgives you, and accepts you unconditionally, and knows you by name. That is the promise of the gospel. Amen.